It's the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent ETA, Agent Ether, and Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out our Facebook group and or page. Group? Page? Page group? I don't know. Whichever comes first. All right. Wait, I think Agent Ether deleted one of them. What do we have left? A, a no, group? we have both. We have both. Okay. We have both. Excellent. Excellent. It's author unknown. It's origins hidden by the veil of time. Coming up in this week's episode... The most mysterious book known to man, the Voynich Manuscript. I feel like I need like an organ cue there, like dun, 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 <laughs> or something like that, right? Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, something <laughs> along those lines. Before we get into that, it's time for Strange Events, Bizarre Facts, The Unbelievable Revealed. This is the Mind Boggle of the Week. They knew it was coming, but had no idea just how bad it would be. On May 18, 1980, Mount St. Helens in Skamania County, Washington, erupted, (laughs) releasing 24 megatons of thermal energy, or 1,600 times that released by the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. It began on March 27, 1980 when a series of volcanic explosions was detected. Geological activity continued until the top literally blew off, or slid off. The entire top of the mountain slid away, the largest landslide ever recorded, traveling at 155 miles an hour and filling valleys up to 600 feet deep with debris. This cataclysmic event would be dwarfed by the eruption itself. In the aftermath, the mountain became a rubble deposit 17 miles long and 150 feet deep. The landslide displaced Spirit Lake in a 600-foot high wave. With the cap off, the pressure below was released. Rock, steam, hot gases, and magma exploded laterally through the landslide to the north. The blast accelerated to 670 miles an hour possibly breaking the sound barrier. A 23 by 19 mile area, about 230 square miles, was destroyed by the blast. Beyond this blast zone, an extreme heat wave killed everything for miles. 57 people were killed in the blast, succumbing to asphyxiation and asphyxiation. How do you say that word? Asphyxiation? Yeah, asphyxiation. Now you, now you got me all messed up, asphyxiation? man. Asphyxiation? <laughs> no, ax, ax asphyx... You, you know what I'm talking. That word. And birds. Worcestershire. <laughs> yeah, Worcestershire sauce. <laughs> Some were crushed under the landslide. Robert Landsberg, a photographer, was killed by the ash cloud, but shielded his camera and saved the photos he had taken, providing valuable science. That is crazy. Imagine the mm-hmm. dedication of that dude. Mm-hmm. He, mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's going to check out and he's just, okay, got to save the photos. Like that would not be on my mind at all. The blast lasted for only 30 seconds, 
but the eruption would continue for hours as the superheated material hit lakes. A larger... I was just about to say that. That that reminds me of this one time. (laughs) As the superheated material hit nearby lakes, a larger secondary explosion was created and was heard as far away as Montana, Idaho, and Northern California. The eruption created an ash column that reached all the way up to the stratosphere, 12 miles high within 10 minutes. 540 million tons of ash fell over a 22,000 square mile area, and eventually ash and debris fell all over the globe. This was the most destructive eruption in the history of the United States. 200 houses, 47 bridges, 15 miles of railway, and 185 miles of roads were destroyed, all adding up to a billion dollars in damages, which adjusted for inflation is probably all of the money. Millions (laughs) of wild animals also lost their lives. The event removed 1,300 feet off the top of the mountain and left a crater 2 miles wide and 2,100 feet deep. This eruption was truly a mind-boggling force of nature. All right, now it's time for the show. The Von Neuage Manuscript. Basically, it's a book in an unknown language by an unknown author about unknown things. Some of the artwork in the book depicts fantastical plants that don't exist in nature, astrological, astrological symbols, or mythic creatures like dragons and fairies. So what's it all about? Let's get to it. I like this is I, I like this is one of my favorite types of topics because it's unsolved. It's definitely weird. Nobody who looks at thing this thing can deny the fact that it's really weird, and we have no idea what it is or who made it well, or anything. And, and there's a lot of people that have looked at this manuscript. I mean, there has been. I mean. I, Countless uh, studies, uh, different people of different uh, walks of life, whether they be like a, a linguist uh, specialist, or they be like a mathematician, or, or just you know, co- just amateurs, just amateurs too. Absolutely, like the whole gambit has been run on this thing. You know De- what I mean? Devoting decades of their lives to just trying yeah. to solve one piece of the puzzle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even, I mean, the the guy that the manuscript was named after, uh, Wilfred Voynich. I mean. He spent, uh, from what I understand, you know, since when he got the manuscript after that, you know, he basically devoted his life to try to uh, find out something about it or, you know, decode it. And uh, I don't, he didn't really get anywhere, right? No, I don't think anyone's gotten anywhere. Which is the crazy thing about it because, I mean, we're talking about like experts from the NSA who do like code breaking and Mm -hmm. amateurs from every walk of life. Artificial. Yeah, intelligence it, now, computers. Yeah, everybody yeah. and everything. Oh, yeah. They've they've thrown everything at this thing, and nobody's been able to figure out what the heck it is. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, in my opinion, I think um, it definitely one of the things that has been found out is it. I don't think it's a forgery, like 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 a hoax. You know what I mean? Because and the reason why I say that is because of the materials in which it's made out of. You know, it definitely was. Uh, it's been carbon dated a couple times. And it, and it appears to be from around the 15th century, 14th century, somewhere around there, right? Yeah. And um, you know the the um, the paints that were used, the uh, quality of ink that was used, uh, the quality of the parchment that was used, 
uh, back then, this would well, this would have been a very expensive endeavor. Like that, you know, you had to have access to uh, some kind of wealth in order to actually just even make this. You and know? you would use it right away. It's like a fine silk or something. It wouldn't just be sitting around somewhere. So when mm -hmm. you carbon date it, that's when it was written. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, and, and I, I kind of find it amazing that the the thing has survived in the condition that it's it's still in. You know. Uh, through all the different hands it's passed through. And, and I mean, this thing is, as, has quite the history behind it as far as just like the, where it's been and who's studied it. And, you know, it, it's it's pretty amazing, I think, you know. And yet we, we don't know anything about it before Voynich got a hold of it. We can study the book itself. I know that they said because of some of the stains and wormholes on the cover in the back of the book, they think that a wood cover had been replaced. Wait. It has it has wormholes on the front of it on the cover. Yeah, this thing is weirder than I thought. <laughs> it just means no. It has damage. It had damage. Well, yeah, wormholes would definitely damage something, some, right? Some of them bookworms I've been hearing about. Oh, bookworms! I thought you meant like interdimensional wormholes. No, actual <laughs> holes from worms. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a lot less exciting than what I was imagining. Also, they have things like somebody went through and just numbered each of the pages with Arabic numerals, but some of the pages are missing. Yeah, mm -hmm. there's supposedly what, like something like 25 pages or something like that, that mm -hmm. we know for a fact or we very strongly suspect are missing. Well, why don't we get a little bit into the known history of it? I think Agent Ether was going to start off with that bit. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about Voynich himself. He was actually born Michael Habdunk Vog... This is a Russian name. Vojnitz in Lithuania on Halloween in 1865. And he would go to several schools, many different schools, getting a doctoral degree. He would be licensed as a pharmacist. He had an extensive knowledge of language. He joined up with revolutionaries in 1885 and was caught and sent to Siberia where he actually escaped on his third attempt, he would end up in London marrying a fellow revolutionist. And because he got married to her, he became a naturalized citizen. And that was in 1904. And he changed his name to Wilfred Michael Voynich at that time. His wife was actually a successful novelist. She had a real passion for books. And it was at the suggestion of his friend who is a librarian at the British Library that he opened up a bookstore and he was, in fact, wildly successful. And eventually he would have one of the largest operating stores in the world for antique books. Wow. Yeah. Pretty badass. You had to have like a significant amount of specialized knowledge in order to be a book, you know, the kind of books he mm -hmm. did were like books from antiquity or whatever. So you'd have to be able to chase down and verify that this guy who lived 500 years ago actually wrote this book. It's a very specialized yeah. skill set. You get, you really got to know what you're looking at. Yeah. So he would travel around the world to different places and he would collect manuscripts and books and he was very skilled and apparently he would trade them for things maybe of lesser value. He was really good at what he did and he was a regular visitor to Italy and in 1912, he went to visit a Villa Mondragone, and he bought the Voynich manuscript from some Jesuits. Hmm. Well, that's how he got his hands on it. And that's right. 
And before that? Before that? Very little history. There's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of this person may have had it and that person may have had it, but we don't really know for sure how it ended up with those Jesuits. We have some clues, but, you know, we're not 100% sure. And there was a person's name written on the page that was, I forget exactly who, it was like some king's, you know. It was the first page, right? Yeah, like the the name of somebody, I forget what the name was, I didn't write it down. But it was like some king or queen's like, you know, something or other, like chemist or whatever. And even that is in doubt because that signature doesn't match the signature of that person that's on file. So people think it might have been added by Voynich himself to try to add some sort of history to this thing so he could sell it. Because to the right buyer, this book would be worth a fortune if it could be traced back to somebody famous. And a lot of people have tried over time to sell this book. Starting with Voynich, who passed away, and then his wife, who eventually sold it for, like, nothing. And then the guy who bought it would go ahead and donate it to Yale because nobody would buy it from him. So that's where it's been all this time. It's been at Yale in their library. Yeah, who wants to buy a book that you can't actually read? (laughs) (laughs) I want to buy it. Oh, I would buy this thing in a heartbeat. And just for you listeners at home... You can go onto Yale's website and find a high-quality scan of the entire thing if you wanted to look at it for yourself, which I definitely recommend because I've never seen anything like this. I've looked through the book, and there's some really weird stuff in there, like really weird stuff. It's also just stunning, looking at a lot of the illustrations. Really weird stuff. All right, what uh, do you have next? Uh, How do we want to do this? Do you want to do... I could talk about like the how the language is structured, but did you mention that it was vellum? Well, he's I uh, know, but you're, he's your vellum. Yeah, your vellum. <laughs> I might be. <laughs> yeah, he talked. I don't know what okay. that means. I would say yes, because <laughs> okay, so yeah, that so parchment. I think that's the same thing as vellum, right? Yeah. Basically, do we mention how many pages it has? Yeah. 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 Sure. Two hundred forty. I think we said or whatever. Else, no, so, no, so why not? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. I'll talk a little bit about. <laughs> how the words on the page are structured and why they think it looks like a language. It does not look like gibberish that somebody made up. So one of the ideas is that this could be a book that was hoaxed. Somebody made it up and then wrote it up and illustrated it and then tried to sell it to like some alchemist or some king or queen or duke or lord or lady because that's what you did back then, I guess. That was not entirely unusual. But the thing is, is that the words have been analyzed And they look like an actual language. They don't look like something that somebody wrote randomly. It doesn't look like, and besides, we're talking about 240 pages here of just random notes. That'd be, but anyways, we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Let's get down to the actual analysis of the language itself that we find on these pages. So in this book, you have a lot of pages with just words. You have pages with pictures that have captions and you have lots of pictures. You have like one part that's like a folio that folds out into like, what, four or six panels, and it has, you know, pictures and words are part of the pictures and just all kinds of crazy stuff. But there's words everywhere in this thing. Yeah, there's actually five sections to this. There's a herbal or botanical section, an astrological section, a bathing section, which is mostly pictures, the rosettes, which are the panels that fold out, and pictures of farming. There's some spicy pictures in there. There are some (laughs) spicy pictures in there. And some people say, you know, the women who are portrayed are actually all pregnant, which is kind Hmm. of interesting. 
This is like a, you know, delete mm-hmm. your browser history section, I guess, right? <laughs> <laughs> Back in those the days. The earliest version, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, some of the uh, the really interesting ones are actually like the uh, astrological calendars that are depicted. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, I don't know, it seems pretty damn interesting, like what, what they're doing, or whoever wrote this, you know. Uh, there's a, all right, it seems like there's a damn purpose, you know yeah. what I mean, to, to me, and like, I don't know, but... I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Go yeah. ahead with the. Uh... Well, and just to give you an idea of how weird it is in the astrological section, there's something that kind of looks like it could be a spiral galaxy or something with like, you know, arms and stuff. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, they would not have, nobody had the capability of of looking at galaxies back then. You would need a pretty powerful telescope. They didn't have that. So that's like really weird. Well, also, this is evidence, of course, of advanced technology of a telescope that existed at this time, given well, yeah. to this civilization by aliens. That's one way of what looking at it. That's one way of looking at it. <laughs> yes. And I, I like it. The other way of looking at it is it's just fucking weird. <laughs> like, what is that doing? It shouldn't be in there. But another section, like the botanical section with the plants, the, most of those plants don't actually exist in nature. And they haven't been able to identify most of them. I think one or two of them they had identified. And some of the plants... They'll take like the flower from something, the stem from something, and the roots from something, and they'll combine those to make like a new plant or something. Like this, the the whole book. You flip through the book, it's almost like something that like I don't know, like Salvador Dali would do or something. Like not not stylistically, but it's all just like really weird stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like dragons in there, fairies. Yeah. Just it's crazy. Oh the, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. I just I was just agreeing with you. You know, one of the things I actually kind of noticed while while. Just staring at some of these pages, some of these uh, digital image, images, uh-huh. uh, some of the dig- digital images, um, the crudeness of the drawings to me doesn't exactly line up with the precision of the writing. You know, I mean, not all the drawings are are are, are crude, but like uh, some of the ones, like the ones of the the pregnant women or the women uh, bathing, you know, in like a green bath of some sort, you know, shaped kind of weird. Um, like I said, it doesn't line up exactly. It's like, to me, I immediately thought of like some of the very precise, um, structures like on the Giza plateau that have like crude hieroglyphics carved into them. Like it just doesn't mm-hmm. line up. You know what I mean? It's not the same level of sophistication. You, you know what I mean? Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Whoever but, I mean, did this wasn't a talented artist when it came to those women and those drawings. Yeah, but some of the drawings I've, I felt were much better than others, though. Some of them were very detailed and very beautiful and very intricate. And, like, they had small details where, I ha- like, I zoomed in on, like, I didn't notice that the first time I looked at it. And it's just, but others, like you're saying, like, with, with the bathing women, maybe whoever was drawing it was being just, like, all the blood was rushing out of their head and they couldn't concentrate. So it kind of, I don't know. I actually think it suggests that multiple people illustrated the book. That could be. That's another possibility. This was 240 pages of hand written and drawn stuff. Would have been quite the task back then. So it would make sense that they would do it in sections and different people would work on it. But Yeah, well, I mean, you, you got to imagine that they, you know, that the outcome, the, the, the book that we have here, you know, uh, is, uh, it couldn't have been the first draft, you know what I mean? With, with the, some of the, some of the level of precision that, that this thing was uh, executed with, I guess you could say, um, you had to have had somebody that was making this, that was very well practiced, you know what yeah. I mean? I don't know. I'm just, you know, I'm just saying is all. Yeah. Well, I imagine a scribe back then, most people were not literate and were, could not write. So those who did. It was almost like magic, and that's probably they did most of that during their day. 
So if, you know, if you do something all day long, you're going to be pretty damn good at it. Even at, you know, even if you're yeah, not the true. best in your field, yeah. but all right, let's get to the structure of the words on the page themselves. So all of the 240 pages have some text. There are about 20 to 25 distinct characters that account for the bulk of the text. And there are a few dozen characters that occur only once or twice. There doesn't appear to be any punctuation anywhere in the book. The text is mostly written in a single column on a page. So, you know, if you look at a newspaper and it'll have like multiple columns, or if you open like your average, you know, paperback novel, it's all just in one column on the page is what, you know, what I mean by that. So it's only on one column on the page and the margin on the right side is irregular and it's regular on the left. And on the left margins, sometimes there are stars drawn and the in the text, there are often, or not often, but there are paragraph divisions in the text. The text also appears in charts or labeling illustrations. I think I already said that. And they, the characters flow together smoothly, like a cursive writing style. And this suggests that the text is not a cipher or code, because coded characters are usually separated. Because if you're making a cipher or a code, you have to look up every single character that you write so you're not going to write them as one continuous word, you know, and connect them together. But that doesn't, I mean, it's not necessarily conclusive. It's just sort of an interesting detail. So some, some of the text is written in a known language. For example, there are a few lines of Latin. The astrological, diora- diorams, the astrological diagrams have the names of 10 of the months written in Latin, and the spelling suggests the medieval languages of France, Northwest Italy, or the Iberian Peninsula, which is like the part where Spain is. For all of you uh, ignorant Americans out there who've never been to Europe, and by the way, I had to look that up, so I'm not trying to be, you know, highfalutin or nothing. <laughs> I had no idea what the Iberian Peninsula was. Portugal's over there to yonder as well. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, that little the little bit that sticks off of Europe right there. Uh, so another part of the, the book, there's um, der Mustheil, which is a German phrase meaning widow's share. And that's drawn, or that's written near a drawing of a naked man. There are, this is my favorite one right here. There's four lines of Latin written in distorted script with two words in Voichinese. Voichinese? Voichinese. Voichinese. That's what they call the language is Voichinese in the book. Voichinese, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Voichinese? Voichinese? Cheese. Cheese. I like cheese. Anyways, uh, there's four lines of Latin written in a distorted script, but there's two words of the text that's in the book that's indecipherable. And... Those are written kind of in the place of where the Latin words would be. And the Latin script appears to be distorted with characteristics of the Voynichese. So how, how the, under, the stuff in the book that we can't decipher has a very particular look to the characters. And it looks like the Latin script has been distorted to sort of resemble those characters. Like almost like they're morphing into those characters, which that one just totally just captured my imagination. Like I, it, I wonder if the whole thing is just sort of like the characters are distorted somehow, or it's sort of like a combination or something. It's really weird. But the text resembles European alphabets of the late 14th and 15th centuries. The words themselves in these four lines, even though they're written in Latin script, don't make any sense at all in any language. And it's unknown if this is original or if it was added sometime after the fact. The text has over 170,000 characters, 35,000 words, 
and 8,114 unique words. The structure of the words follow a set of rules, as you would expect of a language. For example, certain letters must appear in words sort of like vowels. Some letters never follow others, and some may be doubled or tripled, but not others. Some can only appear at the beginning, middle, or end of the word. Letters that never appear in the middle of words, but only at the beginning or end, don't exist in any Indo-European language. So that would be like in, in English, if we had like the letter T, you can only start the word with T. T cannot be in the middle or end of a word. That's what they mean by that. And I guess that doesn't ever happen in any European or Indo language. I'm, I'm guessing they mean like India and the related languages to... Yeah, so basically in all of all of that area, your your Asia, I think they call it sometimes, languages just don't do that. So it's really weird to see those patterns in this book. Almost none of the words in the book have more than 10 letters or fewer than two. Some of the words occur only in certain sections of the book or only on specific pages. Some of the common words appear up to three times in a row. Words that differ by only one letter repeat frequently, and as a result, a single substitution alphabet leads to babel-like text. So if you have the word, I don't know, book, it'll repeat three times in a row, but it'll be book, then B-O-I-K, then B-O-U-K. So it doesn't make, like, it's kind of weird, right? Like, it's, it's unusual that they would do, that it would be written like that. Those are exclamation marks. It could be. The, there's all kinds of unusual going on with this book. I'm looking at page, uh, what is this, 42R, I think, or something like that. Let me see here, 24R? Yeah, 24R, I think. Um, some of these plants, man, like the the flowers, like it, it, the flowers uh, get me all hot and bothered, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a naughty, that's a naughty flower right there. <laughs> Have you seen Little Shop of Horrors? Is there anything like yeah. that in there? <laughs> <laughs> Bop, shoo, wop. Oh, that movie's awesome. Kidding me? Feed me, Seymour. That's a great yeah. movie. You know, my childhood would not be the same without it. I can yeah. just tell you that much. <laughs> Steve Martin as a dentist, kid me. He'll be a dentist or whatever it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, that is a really, really good movie. Show actually. that to your kids. That is a good way to scare your kids from the dentist forever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I agree. Steve Martin I'm gonna is a I'm gonna show. I'm going to show, if I ever have kids, I'm going to show them that movie and tell them that it was a. Uh, um, Based on a real story. Was, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a documentary. <laughs> Maybe that was the original script is contained in the Voynich manuscript, right? That's oh, what the book is about. Is. But the little no, okay. Anyways, uh, a dude named Stephen Vonfeld looked at statistical di distributions of the letters and how they might work together and concluded that the language had more similarities to Mandarin Chinese than to European languages. But uh, I don't really it's if you look at the words it's it's hard to understand what he means having, you know, personally not speaking any Chinese and not knowing anything about linguistics, but hey, I read it online, so it must be true, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah, statistical analysis suggests that it's a natural language and not randomly made up text. Because randomly made up text wouldn't have rules like, for example, like vowels or letters that can only appear in the beginning of a word. It would just be random, right? So yeah, that's pretty much um, like the basics of the statistical analysis and like how the words and the letters work. You could really go into quite a lot more depth on that, but I, that's probably good enough for now. I think for our purposes. Sure. sure. All right. I agree. Who's up next. Agent ETA go. 
Oh, uh, I got to take a PS. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have been right. hold, holding one back for quite some time now. <laughs> but uh, if, if, if you wouldn't mind, excuse me just for a minute here. I'll be right back. Sure, sure. Okay? All right. Agent Ether will start on something while you're doing that. No. No? No, we should wait. That way we have commentary. Okay. All right, I'm back. Yo. Sorry about that. All right. What were we talking about? You were about to talk about one of your many topics that you have prepared for us. I only have conspiracy theories left. Oh, is that all you have left? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Well, let's see. We talked about um, about some of like the artwork in there. We talked about the structure of the words. And uh, we could talk, talk about, about some of them naughty-ass flowers depicted on the pages there. Oh, and I yeah. have the theory about the women. Okay, why don't you hit us up with a theory about the women? I can talk a little bit about like some of the attempts to decipher it and stuff. Okie dokie. And then, oh, why don't I do that first? And then you can talk about your women. No. Okay, talk about your women. <laughs> I will. Okay, go for it. So I actually have my, my own theory that I was thinking about. And that's that back then, you know, women weren't really, what am I looking for here? Women weren't really... People with souls? No, they were really en- encouraged <laughs> to be to be educated necessarily. And I think there was a lot of stigma placed on women who practiced medicine and who could write, you know. And so I think maybe this was a group of women who came together who practiced medicine. This is you go first. Uh well you gotta finish it now. No. Why not? I gotta start over again. Yeah, you were oh, committed. Damn it, I got to edit that out? Yeah. That was going so well. No, edit the whole thing. Okay, well, probably not, just because it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even think. I cannot talk. <laughs> Too much conspiracy juice, huh? Uh, yeah, we were just, I was just telling Agent Anderson <laughs> that I might have had a little bit too much to drink, and he called me belligerent. Yeah, I said... You're getting drunk and belligerent. Which is very offensive. No, so look, here's the thing. It's also very fun. You have this group of women. They come together. They want to form their own language. They want to encrypt a book with different remedies. They want to keep it secret. And so what they do is it's almost like an encryption. And one woman will speak one language and a different woman will speak another language. And then, you know... They'll say, okay, well, let's do this randomly. You're going to put in these random words and these random characters. But if each woman has her own code breaker, her own Rosetta Stone, and you need all of them to break the code. Hmm. Okay, I like it. Yeah. And back then, remember back then, the church would kill you for having certain ideas. Like we talked about on a previous episode, I think. There was this dude back in the day, like around somewhere around when they wrote this, I forget the exact year, but it was a while ago, like 1500s or 1600s. And he suggested that um, there were probably other planets out there with living beings on there. Church did not like that. So they killed the dude. Well, for that and some other reasons, but that was part of it. You know, you couldn't just say stuff like that. So you were saying like the plants, it would have the root of one plant and the stem of a different plant and then the flower. Uh-huh. What if these were like instructions to make herbal tonics or mixtures? Okay, so they put the different ingredients together. As, yeah. Yeah. Or what if it was symbolic and like the flower meant one thing and then the roots meant something else. And then if you put all three together in the picture, then that's actually kind of meant something. It was sort of like a, a pictorial code, if you will. Mm-hmm. That be, might be true. Could be part of it. Or what if that was the pictures themselves are part of helping to decipher this thing? 
Well, I know in one of the sections, they had a lot of vials that looked like maybe medicinal or perfume vials, like little glass jars, you know, which suggests that might have a lot of medicinal purposes in there. Yeah. It does not explain the astrological charts, however. No, it's there's nothing. Also, when some people said that uh, maybe it's a depiction of like an alchemist lab, but when you look at the equipment, like the vials and stuff, they don't match the equipment being used at the time. So, it, I mean, it's really, none of it makes sense. Like, it doesn't match up to anything that should have been around when it was written. It's The whole thing is just bizarre. But, okay, so I'll talk about a little bit about the history of trying to decode this thing. So, a lot of people believe that the text is a cipher. I think we've said that a couple times. Um, when they, they dated the book to the early 15th century or 16th century, and around this time was actually the beginning of cryptography, there's a lot of different types of ciphers that had been used around that time. Just to give you an example, so a cipher, it's basically an algorithm to encode the text of a book or data. You can use it to encode anything, but here we're talking about words, right? A simple example would be what they call a simple substitution cipher, where you take the alphabet and then you just substitute one letter for another. So instead of writing A, you write X. Instead of B, you write N or whatever. And then you just do that for all the letters and you just leave all the letters in the same groupings or whatever. And this is this would be very Aren't easy. Aren't those just anagrams? Is that what they're called? No, this is a substitution cipher. Anagram is where you switch around the letters. Oh, okay. I think. But yeah, so this is this would be like the simplest type of cipher. Also very easy to crack as far as these things go. Because, for example, if you just have one letter by itself, it's probably going to be A or I, right? I mean, that's pretty much your options. So... There are a lot of other different types of ciphers, some of them incredibly complicated, um, some of them not so much so, but a cipher would basically require some sort of key or something like that in order to decrypt it, right? So a European author, um, uh, the thing about this book is that a European author would only use a strange language or a cipher like this to hide information, and that's that's what people a lot of people think is that there there's something here that is not at face value because like we were saying that you know like certain powers that be particularly the church would go after you or kill you for certain ideas that didn't line up with theirs so that's why they think a lot of people think that this is not like a, a language that has been lost but it's an actual cipher because you know because of that reason and because of the style of the book is in a style that's similar or lines up with uh, an Italian Renaissance style. Everything from like the, you know, looks like how things are written to the pictures and that kind of stuff. The paper uses, use, or not the paper, but the um, material, the vellum, which is like calfskin, I think, used to write on and that kind of stuff. Okay, so there, there's a lot of different, we know about a lot of the cipher, if not all of the cipher systems in use at the time that this book was written, but none of them can really account for the book and how it's encoded. Because, I mean, if it was as easy as taking a known cipher system and applying that to the book, it would have been decoded a long time ago, right? And the so just for example, it can't be a simple cipher because of the distribution of letters doesn't match any language. So like a simple cipher, remember, the word book will be translated to something else, but it'll still have four letters. You know, every word will be the same length and everything. So it can't be a simple cipher because if it was, it would match a language that are that we know about probably, and it doesn't. 
Okay, so there's a lot of other ciphers. We won't go through all of them, but every cipher that we know about runs into some problem like that. Like it just, it can't, we can't decode the book with it. Um, it's possible that it was a little more complicated that, than that. Like maybe they used a simple substitution cipher and then they also used, after doing that, they used um, null letters or letters that are sort of like placeholders, duplicate letters, they rearranged letters or they added false spaces so instead of like the word book, instead of four, it might become a group of three and then a group of four with extra fake letters added in and then a space added in the middle of the word somewhere. So something like that. And without the key to decrypt that, it would be probably impossible because you don't know what they're substituting. You don't know what they're adding and taking away and that kind of stuff. It's so interesting. What is so important that you would have to encrypt it to this level? Well, even basic ideas back then, like the world is round, could get you killed. So it could be literally anything that the church didn't want you to know about, right? Yeah. I mean, who knows? But it could also be a code cipher where each word would, you'd have to look up the word in a code dictionary. So if there's like these, these three letters meant something specific, like, you know, XYZ might mean dog or whatever, but you would have no way of knowing that without having the dictionary because unlike a simple type cipher where you substitute the letters and you could actually figure it out, this type of cipher, it would be pretty much impossible to tell by the context of the language what each one meant. You couldn't do it without the dictionary. So that's, I mean, that's kind of a real possibility, sort of, but there's, there's really no way to know for sure. Uh, some other ideas are that the text could be mostly meaningless, but the message could be hidden in certain details. For example, the number of capital letters on a page the number of words on a page, or even the shape of certain letters. And this method is called steganography. It's kind of impossible to decode this without knowing that it's that for sure. Because if you have a code that uses, I don't know, the number of three-letter words on a page, there's no way to really, you're not going to be able to know that without having the key in order to decrypt it, right? So, I mean, it could be that, but we don't know. We don't know, and we will never know if that is the answer. There's no way to figure it out, as far as I'm aware. Um, it could also be a natural language written in an invented alphabet. So, because, for example, there's similarities to Chinese, which has things that uh, European languages don't, like tonal patterns. So, for example, if you have a word, like let's say dog, in Chinese, if you say dog, dog, you know, or dog, like that, it means different things. Now, I, I know I'm not doing it justice, but that's what tonal language means, is the tones you use to say the word can change the meaning of the word. So this could explain things like why certain words are repeated that might have something to do with something like a tonal language. So that's, that's another idea, is that it could be, um, you know, it could be like a translation of a language like Chinese uh, that that we didn't necessarily know the characters for, but they were using some maybe like a shorthand or their own invented notation to sort of notate a foreign language like Chinese. Also, the book seems to divide the year into 360 days, and that's the Chinese agricultural calendar does that as well. So that's that's one another one of those details where you go, that's really interesting. So that means it's Chinese. But not so fast, because there's really not anything else that suggests that it is Chinese. It's just, it, it, that's how this, this whole thing is like, you can take one little thing out of context and make a conclusion, but when you put everything together, none of it makes any sense. So there's, there's been, throughout history, 
some more prominent attempts to decipher this thing. I'll go over a couple of those, but obviously, like we've been saying, you know, we wouldn't be talking about this book if they'd figured out what it meant. So in 1921, William Romain Newbold claimed to have deciphered the book. He said that the text itself was meaningless, but under magnification, each letter is composed of tiny markings in Greek shorthand. This theory is not really, it's not really accepted by anybody. It's, it's sort of, it's a fun theory, right? It's a fun idea that somebody had a microscope back then and was able to write these tiny words. And then when you zoom out, it just looks like this other text. So it's like a text hidden within a text. Oh, and then that's proof. Yeah. If there were microscopes. Yeah, and it's it's really exciting that that could be like a hidden script in there. But if you look at it, like pictures of this, like zoomed in, it's it looks like the way that um, like the letters he's talking about, it kind of looks like the way ink cracks when it dries. So it, it's sort of just like coincidental. Some of them so happen to look like characters, but it doesn't really look like Greek shorthand, at least not in my opinion. But hey, you could look it up yourself and come to your own conclusions. But also, like, you know, they didn't have a microscope back then that would let them write this small. Or, so, or, or did, did they? they? <laughs> or did they? Yeah. <laughs> okay. In 1943, Joseph Martin, uh, he proposed, or jo- Joseph Martin Feely proposed that the text was a scientific diary written by Roger Bacon using abbreviated Latin and a simple substitution cipher. Because why not? But nobody really puts much stock in this one, but that's one of the theories. By the way, um, Roger uh, Kevin Bacon was a dude who was really into cryptography, and he could have written this. He was around around the time it was written, but there's no evidence to link it to him. But he's one of the more popular figures that people suggest as an author just because of who he was and what he was capable of. He was. Uh, we won't go to, through his history. That's a whole other episode, but dude was pretty much a fucking genius back in his day, and he could have written a book like this, absolutely. But there's really no no reason to believe that he did. All right. In 1950, Lionel C. Strong proposed a peculiar double system of arithmetical progressions of a multiple alphabet. And um, that's what it said. And I have no idea what the hell that means. So moving right along to 1978, John John Stodgeko suggested it was vowelless Ukrainian, which... (laughs) Again, an interesting idea, I suppose, but nobody really takes this one seriously, except for maybe, you know, a couple of Ukrainians. I don't know. In 2017, a TV writer named Nicholas Gibbs claimed it was a guide to women's health in abbreviated Latin. Most people think this one is kind of nonsense as well. And also in 2017, Greg Kondrak used computational linguistics to conclude it was Hebrew encoded using al- uh, alphagrams or alphabetically ordered anagrams, which is, it's an interesting idea, but um, nobody really believes that one either, just because the evidence of where it was probably written, and, you know, they just, there's, probably they wouldn't have used Hebrew, is basically why nobody believes that one, and besides the fact that he can't really back it up anyways. So there's just a, you know, just a sampling of people that have tried to decipher this thing, but Nobody's come even close. I mean, none of it really makes any sense once you stack up all the evidence. A lot of people claim, though, that they have, in fact, translated it. 
Yeah, like, what was that one dude in 2019, I think? He said he decoded it using lateral thinking or something like that. Like, <laughs> oh, you do, oh, lateral thinking. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, the, that's a... Uh, that's just a quick summary of that. So what what do you have for us, Agent Ether? Well, there's a lot of uh, interesting theories around who wrote it or how to decipher it. And I found one I really like, and it has to do with time travel paradoxes. Ooh, I like it. Oh, I, I really yeah. liked it, too. So here's the idea. There was somebody from the future, a time traveler, and the Voynich language exists in the future and he brings it to the past and he uses it to help him describe what's going on in the Middle Ages in his own language. So what we need now is a team of linguistics. They're going to assign symbols based on the human language, not as translations of the text, but arbitrarily, meaning however they want, so long as it's consistent what they know about other languages. So... We're not asking them to decipher it. We're asking them to invent a new language like, I don't know, Klingon. And then whatever language they come up with using these symbols, we declare them to be the Voynich language and we start using it. We publish it in books. We have it as a language. And assuming that it was written by a time traveler, we would expect over time that this language would naturally evolve in such a way that in the future, we would be able to actually decode the manuscript. And if that is true, it would prove the existence of time travel. Nice. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of like a self-fulfilling language. Yes. A self-fulfilling language is a good description. Awesome. Yeah, I liked it too. Okay. We, (laughs) We have someone on Reddit uh, Shiamon. This was actually from like 15 years ago. But this person says, upon viewing the Voynich book, I immediately understood the language and why no one in past times had been able to decipher it. It is, in fact, a heavenly language brought to us by the angels. It is a gift given to man, although man did not write it himself. It was penned down by him. And that's why all these plants are in there. They're actually plants that existed in the Garden of Eden. And the whole manuscript exists for healing and knowledge purposes. And if you look and you see it, you will understand it. Hmm. Okay. Well, (laughs) hey, they have it on Yale's website on their library thing. So maybe I'll check it out. Oh, wait, I did check it out and I couldn't decipher it. Well, obviously you're not in touch with the heavenly spirits. I guess not. Oh, well. You have to be a truly spiritual believer. Does that mean I'm going to purgatory or something? No, it just means you can't read the manuscript. Oh, okay. Well, that's like going to (laughs) purgatory. You can't find enlightenment. (laughs) Okay, one one of the foremost theories is that the book itself was fabricated by Voynich in an attempt to make a ton of money on the book. But there's a couple of problems with this. First of all, the carbon dating kind of rules that out in the first place because it had, like you said earlier, this thing was written back then. It, if it was a modern fabrication, it would not have been, it would not have passed the carbon dating. Um, but also, like Voynich was a successful dude. He didn't need to fabricate books to make more money. He was already doing really well for himself. 
but that said, he would have definitely had the skills to fabricate something like this. He had the knowledge to pass it off as genuine. And there's there's a lot more to this theory. Like there's a letter that was supposedly with the book that talks about stuff, but doesn't specifically talk about this book specifically. But you, if you put the letter with the book, it kind of seems like it's talking about the book. So some people say that Voynich found that letter and then fabricated the book to go with the letter to kind of, but I mean, there's really no evidence of that. It's just pure speculation. Um, and then there's also uh, people that we've mentioned like, uh, you know, sir, what was his name? It wasn't Kevin Bacon. It was uh, Roger Bacon. Roger Bacon. Okay. Yeah. That the, the genius dude. Um, there's a lot of people like him when you go through history that did know some sort of cryptography and might've had the skills to write this book. But I, I mean, I've, there's really no point in going over those individuals because there's absolutely zero evidence to connect any of them to this book. Obviously somebody back then wrote it. We just don't know who it was. And there's no evidence pointing towards any particular person or group of people. I disagree. Okay. So what really happened is aliens crash landed on this planet. They were not able to get back to their homes and this actually explains why the manuscripts depict star charts that are unknown to us, because it was created by beings who weren't of this earth uh, in the 1400s. And so they created this manuscript kind of to document their time on earth, doing the best they can, given all the different languages that were you know, spoken at the time, spoken and written at the time. And humans didn't possess, you know, the necessary technology to help these aliens, so they just did the best they could to fit in. Hmm. Okay. I like it. Yes. Aliens. Not saying it was aliens, but, but it, was it was aliens. aliens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is one of those ones where it's just, I love these topics where it's definitely something weird. We can't figure it out. It's just a real mystery, you know? It's just, it kind of makes my imagination go wild. Like, who wrote it? Why did they write it? Is it information that's encoded? Is it like a transliteration of a different language like Chinese? Is it a completely lost language that existed at one point in some hidden valley somewhere and has been lost to time? Nobody knows for sure. I mean, we probably will never have the answers to this. We can only wonder. But it's not just the language. It's also the pictures in the book, the the unexplainable, you know, astrological stuff. The fact that like the month, 10 of the months are written in Latin and we can read those or those those four lines of Latin that look like they're morphing into the unknown language. Like there's just so much about this book that just sort of boggles the mind. It's really, really fun to just look through it and imagine like, what does all this mean? But at the end of the day, that's all it is. Like we just have to wonder there's, there's no answer and there probably never will be. Well, I actually have one more theory here. Okay. And this is not mine. I found this online that a severely mentally ill patient of high status was placed in a monastery because back then in that day and age, if somebody was ill or pregnant or otherwise just needed to be hidden from high society, they would place them in some sort of monastery under the guise of who knows what kind of, you know, excuse. So are you saying that pregnant ladies are mentally ill? Because I don't think that's going to fly. That's that's like you're going to get canceled if you say something like that. No, no, I'm saying mentally ill and I guess, and or pregnant women (laughs) (laughs) were forced to go into these monasteries so they wouldn't shame and embarrass their families and they could keep up pretenses. Oh, they're just gone there for religious reasons. 
Right, right. right. So he's away at the monastery because he's respectable. He can be physically accounted for should the need arise. And a rival family, you know, can't come in and, and use that as some sort of gain. And he keeps himself busy inside his own head by writing down the ramblings using the monastery's writing supplies. Maybe he can read and write. He invents his own language or code. And he writes what makes sense to him. The family's compensating the monastery to keep him there. And the monks basically just leave him alone and he's in his own world. Okay. Is that your theory? That's not my theory. That's a theory I found on the interwebs. So basically a uh, mentally ill person stuck at a monastery. Yes. But why does it have to be a mentally ill person? Couldn't it just be like a regular person who's bored? Because back then they didn't have like TV and the internet and stuff. I mean, what are you going to do? Just watch trees grow or paint dry? I mean, no, they came up with like ciphers and stuff because they were that bored. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see what happens if we write this down, but we switch out all the A's for X's, you know, like... (laughs) It was, uh, it was that kind of a day every day back then, right? So, well, it could have been a monk, though, now that you mention it. Uh, uh, it's an order. That's actually a very plausible idea because amongst the population, people at monasteries were probably the most literate and educated of the time, you know, besides the nobility. So it seems likely that somebody at a monastery who doesn't have daily chores or daily responsibilities outside of doing religious stuff and you know, thinking and writing stuff down and figuring stuff out. I mean, they would have plenty of time. They would have the materials. They would have everything they needed to do to make something like this happen. They would know a lot of different languages. They would be scribes. Yeah. Maybe it was just sort of an attempt at some sort of, you know, what we would call science fiction today. Maybe it was some sort of fantastical story about bizarre plants and fairies and dragons or whatever. And maybe they had to encode it. Because you can't write fiction back then, right? If you know, if you're writing something like that with, you know, a story with stuff in there like naked ladies, I mean, the church probably wouldn't like that too much. So <laughs> blasphemous. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, there's How just so dare many. Thee. Yeah. <laughs> there's so many possibilities with this thing. It's that's what I mean, man. It just makes my mind go wild. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a crazy conundrum, you know. I think uh, me personally, my my opinion is that uh, I think it is a ancient like herbal recipe, like a uh, you know like dictionary or not dictionary, but yeah, a recipe book, you know, that's heavily encoded, and uh, whoever wrote it was obviously a genius if it was one person. But I actually do kind of think that uh, one person may not have been able to do this all on their own, maybe. But I don't know. Who knows what the hell can happen, you know? But yeah, it's. I, know, I think it's something kind of like that. And what's on the missing pages? Is that is that where it gets like real nasty? Like, what is that? Why is it missing? Where did it go? Why did they take that? that maybe yeah. that was, in fact, the how you would decode it was yeah. on those missing pages. Yeah, maybe that was the key yeah. to do. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it just well, maybe maybe like that was like the Karma Sutra like section. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> talk about naked ladies. That was like the section with those foldouts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was all. That was all. Yeah, that, that was all the good foldouts. Somebody took them. Yeah, you thought Playboy <laughs> invented the centerfold? Nope. <laughs> and really, like, like the book has that. It really has pages that fold out into like larger pages. Oh, kind of, I saw. Cool I saw one of the one of the pages that folds out. That kind of looks like an overhead view of a city. Someone went in on a computer and made it three dimensional. 
So you can go in and you can view it in three dimensions. You can like turn it around. You can look at it from different perspectives. And it was it was actually very interesting. And this person thought that it was, in fact, a view of the city or of multiple cities. And some of the, you know, ducks were actually aqueducts or some sort of landscaping markings or roads. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think that's pretty much about all we have for this case, right? You, you fellas, fellas all done. Fellas and gals. Fellas and yeah. gals all, all uh, said your piece on this one. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. All right. Well, before we take off, we've actually got some fan mail. We, we have one for ETA that I definitely want to get to. We've got a couple of letters here. Oh, shit. Okay, let's see. Uh, so Brandon, the man with a plan, writes in and says, You guys are awesome. Love the vibes you guys have in the episode. You guys actually got me into podcasts altogether. Lol. I'd like to hear your, guy, your guys' comments on the Skinwalker Cryptid. Hey, well, thanks, Brandon. Yeah, we would, uh, we're, I think that's on the list. We're definitely going to get to it sooner or later. Skinwalker For Ranch. Sure. I mean, we have to, yeah. But yeah, thanks for the mail. And um, you, hey, if we got you in a podcast, you're in for a treat because you're scraping the bottom of the, bottom of the barrel with this show. <laughs> 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 All right, we have from, uh, from, from uh, Louis or Luis. I'm not sure. How do you spell Louis and Louis? What's the difference there? Just call him Louis Louis. Louis from Louis Louis says, Hey guys, love the podcast. Lots of interesting stuff said, and it's very entertaining. But for the love of whatever you believe in, please tell Agent ETA it's supposedly not supposably. (laughs) (laughs) Do I I say that? (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Okay, then. (laughs) Yeah. Those are... Those are just those are a couple of we have a we have a few more maybe we'll do them next week. But. Does anyone complain about the accents? Uh, no, we haven't had any emails about the accents yet. I'm waiting for them. Though. Yeah, I'm sure it's only coming. a matter of time. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, thanks for writing in, guys. We really like to hear your hear from the fans, hear your emails and stuff. I uh, appreciate it, and um, I guess that uh, that's it for this week, right? Anybody have anything else? Nope. All right. Well, thanks for listening. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out our Facebook page. Keep it strange.